This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, uh, today Steve Behrman, who is uh, also known as Beyond Ananda. He's an internationally known author, humorist, and workshop leader. Uh, Steve, or I think I'm going to call you Beyond Ananda. Thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Well, very good. Thank you. I have Swami, the Swami Beyond Ananda here with me. I can change costumes at the flick of a flick because we're on radio. Very good. Well, we'll just imagine you putting on a turban. That's right. The Swami is turban-powered. I'm just sort of an ordinary person. <laughs> okay, Steve, um, let us fill in our audience, some of whom are familiar with uh, your character, Swami Beyond Ananda, some are not. You have a life independent of the Swami as a humorist and a lecturer on humor. Um, how did a nice boy from Brooklyn become a humor maven, a humorist, um, and how did that segue into Swamidom? Well, let's just say I am a boy from Brooklyn. I'm not sure how nice that is. Um, something about Brooklyn makes people laugh. Maybe it's the water that they used for the water bagels. I'm not sure what. But there's something in New York that cultivates sense of humor, and it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. You know, there's great Irish humorists and great, you know, black, Puerto Rican, Italian. It, 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 it all kind of came, came together in New York. There's something about that, uh, maybe everybody being bunched up against one another that creates kind of a, a uh, um, pressure, and the best way to uh, relieve and release that pressure is through humor. So... I was very, very fortunate to grow up in a family where people laughed. They laughed a lot. And I just remember being a little, little kid at my grandparents' little apartment in Brooklyn and just listening to everybody laugh and tell jokes and eat and drink and be merry. And my dad was a very funny guy. Uh, he wasn't a professional comedian. But I noticed uh, that his humor really was much more about bringing people together rather than putting people down. And so at a very, very early age, I just began to love comedy. And uh, I was the class comedian, you know, and uh, the way that you know that you're, uh, that's your archetype, you're chosen for that. It's the first time you're in the lunchroom and you make another kid laugh so hard that milk comes out of their nose and then that's <laughs> a sign from God. And I, you know, I ignored, you know, I was a kid, I, I ignored that, you know, uh, when I became an adult because all of us are told to... Uh, to grow up, to, to get serious and so on. And uh, I was pursuing a serious career, uh, which sounds kind of funny. Uh, I was uh, started an uh, alternative high school in Washington, D.C., wrote a book called No Particular Place to Go, published by Simon & Schuster about my experiences. I was an educator. I was teaching at Wayne State University in Detroit, uh, labor history and ethnic studies. And a funny thing happened, which when you say that a funny thing happened, sometimes it's funny and sometimes it isn't. And this time it wasn't. I got laid off from my dream job, which I loved. Uh, and the only job I could get, because I had at one point lived on a farm and learned how to operate heavy equipment, I got a job with the city of Ann Arbor, Michigan, 
taking down trees that had Dutch elm disease. And my Jewish mother in Brooklyn, she, she became very concerned, and I'm not, I, I'm not making this up, this is true, that I would catch Dutch elm disease. And I said, Mom, you know, people don't get Dutch <laughs> elm disease. Dogs get it. She goes, dogs get it. What happens to dogs? I said, they lose their bark. So, um, <laughs> I got it. Yeah, with, and with my mom, you had to do that, you know. So anyway, so I'm at this job, and I'm, I'm writing a serious book, again, a sequel on education, you know, looking for a way out of getting up every morning, putting on a jumpsuit and a hard hat and chipping brush. And I just get this message, and the message is, um, I hear a voice, actually, and I don't normally hear voices. And the voice was, let this go. Well, I let it go. Um, and, and the message continued, uh, the book you're working on, on education, that's the past. You need to focus on the future. I said, cool, what's the future? Nothing. But a few weeks later, uh, they put a new guy with me who is a brilliant psychologist disguised as a truck driver. And as uh, amazing, amazing grace would have it. He made a suggestion to me that we start uh, an anonymous, humorous newspaper for the guys we worked with, and that's what happened. And in the course of the year or so that I worked on this paper while I was working at the shop, I noticed that the workplace was transformed because of humor. First of all, we infused novelty we, we disrupted life as the ordinary. That was number one. Number two, we were able to say things that could not be said. We were able to say them in humor. And uh, mm -hmm. the lesson that I learned uh, in that uh, two-year two period of time that I was writing that publication was, my goodness, humor really is transformational. It transmutes all kinds of energy. We could talk a little bit more about the alchemy of humor as we go on, but it transmutes all kinds of energy. And then number two, I was really good at it. This was my gift, and this is what I was here to do. Mm -hmm. And so um, very shortly after, I started a publication, a holistic publication in Ann Arbor called Pathways, and we decided we needed humor, and Swami became our mascot, our delivery system for humor, and that's really how this character began and how I got set on the path from being a serious professor uh, to a humorous purveyor. Mm -hmm. Steve, uh, you, you, uh, your humor is based on uh, spirituality in, in, or, or those seeking spirituality and everything that surrounds that. And uh, I'm curious, and I'm going to guess over the years, you've been exposed to many, many spiritual movements and groups uh, throughout the, the U.S. Uh, do you generally find that those spiritual seekers <clears throat> uh, are um, more, uh, that laughter, that humor is a part of their spiritual path, whether they know it or not? That, that, because sometimes we think of spiritual seekers as being very solemn monks in a monastery, never cracking a smile, very serious all the time. But in fact, my experience is uh, when I've been around various spiritual groups, there's often an element of uh, a significant element of humor. And if it's a, a spiritual group that's guru centric, uh, that level of, of, of humor is usually dependent upon uh, the guru and his sort of attitude toward, uh, toward humor. I, I'm wondering 
what your experience is in regard to that, your observations. Well, okay, that's, that's a big question. Let me back up to when I first started doing this, what I noticed that, that there were two common afflictions that the spiritual people that I met had. And, you know, this ran the gamut from people who followed various uh, Hindu gurus to people who were, quote-unquote, New Age. And uh, the two afflictions, I would, one I would call pathological purity. And pathological purity is where you feel like there's something that's impure about you. I mean, I knew people, they wore white, they only ate white food. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of you know, fasting, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, you know, basically going to uh, uh, asceticism and, uh, and cleaning up. And, you know, so I saw that one, one extreme. There was a lot of that. On the other hand, we saw what I would call spiritual materialism, where people would learn how to chant and then chant for a BMW. So those are the two, two kinds of extremes. I always found that there was something disarming about the humor that I did, and that even if people were serious, they would laugh in spite of themselves. And the first time I had an opportunity to actually perform in front of a real Swami, it was rather intimidating. It was Swami Satchitananda uh, at Yogaville, you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. the uh, ashram, uh, Lotus Shrine mm-hmm. in, uh, in Virginia. And, you know, of course, here I am. This is 25 years ago or more, so I'm about to, uh, I'm a phony Swami about to go and do a performance in front of a real Swami. So the night before, we went to his satsang, and he said, uh, he said, what if you want to achieve enlightenment, you must desire nothing. Well, at the time, uh, I had just produced the box of nothing, a very colorful box that had lots of jokes about nothing, a hole in the box to see how much nothing you had left, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And so the next night, he came to the show. And at the end of the show, I very ceremoniously presented him with a box of nothing to help him get enlightened. (laughs) And uh, when he had his 85th birthday party five years later, he invited us, invited me to do my nothing presentation because he was so uh, tickled by it. Now, Sajjadananda, like um, uh, Maharishi, uh, like the Dalai Lama, these are all people who laugh very easily, mainly because they take themselves lightly, mainly because they, they see the, the, the silliness in so much of the ego's antics and activities. But as you were suggesting, what I, what I noticed uh, when I was doing my show for Satchitananda is that the, uh, the close disciples looked at the boss to see if the boss was laughing. Exactly, so exactly. He, yeah. had, he had no problem laughing mm-hmm. at, at all of this. Uh, you know, he definitely recognized the, uh, um, the, uh, the depth of humor when it comes to the human condition. And it's just everybody else who um, was more tied into the structure of of the path rather than the sense of it. That's as, interesting. As Westerners often are. Steve, do you find people um, uh, in spiritual circles uh, capable um, more or less than the average person, or you know, just a regular uh, audience? of uh, self-deprecating humor, of, of being able to accept uh, being satirized themselves. Uh, my own experience is that, that many people are more enfrightened than enlightened when it comes to things <laughs> like that. 
Well, you know, again, it really depends on, you know, on who comes to the shows. I mean, mm. obviously, if somebody is going to, is taking this thing so seriously, uh, they, Swami calls it the humoroids. If they've got humoroids, <laughs> an enlargement of the onus, um, where they feel so responsible they can only pass heavy judgments, then, you know, those people will select themselves out. Uh, I think that there's something about the, uh, the playfulness of the kind of humor that I've learned how to do in the guise of the Swami character um, that coaxes out um, through surprise and delight. When people are surprised, they burst out laughing, even mm. if they don't mean to. Yeah. And once that happens, then everybody kind of discovers that, well, everybody else is laughing. One of the most difficult shows I ever did had nothing to do with spirituality. It was for, um, believe it or not, the juvenile justice system in Colorado. And somebody invited me to speak at one of their conferences, and there were all of the people who were involved with, uh, with juvenile detention centers and juvenile advocates and the entire hierarchy from top to bottom. And what happened was everybody was afraid to laugh because the people looked at the, at the folks who were their uh, superiors and they weren't comfortable laughing in that presence. And then the other ones looked at those who were their underlings and they couldn't laugh. So we had a very, very uncomfortable hour as people were too uncomfortable to laugh mm. because they didn't feel safe um, inside the structure of, of their workplace. Um, in terms of spiritual things, I, I remember one time, uh, very, very, very early on in doing this, about 1987, almost 30 years ago, um, it was a little metaphysical church in, in uh, Arlington, Virginia. And um, I'm doing my thing, and the audience is sitting there stone-faced. It was like, you ever play Mount Rushmore? It was like playing Mount Rushmore. <laughs> And there were two guys off in the corner laughing hysterically, but everybody else was just, you know, just stone-faced. And, well, I met the, the two guys who were laughing, and one of them turned out to be Patch Adams. So we've been friends now mm. since then. Um, but the other people, just they never laughed. And so when we, uh, a couple of days later, we went back to the church to, uh, to get our mm -hmm. check from the minister, and we were surprised <laughs> to find that it was more than what we agreed on. And I said, what's more than what we said he says oh i know they loved you <laughs> 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 well they didn't tell their faces um wow you know. what why was that why so didn't they yeah virginia no but wh why why do you think they didn't react um i don't i think that maybe they didn't understand it was comedy sometimes i've i've done programs where uh the mc or the host decides that they're going to they're going to pretend that I'm a real spiritual master, and then I and then I, I never let uh -huh. them do that anymore because mm. what that does is it puts people in confusion during the first you know five, ten, fifteen minutes of the performance, yeah. and they they miss out on really enjoying the humor and really letting themselves go and laugh and and uh, shake loose all of these structures and shoulds and oughts and all of that other stuff, and uh, so. Uh, that happened uh, a while back, and for the second program I did for those people, I said, please let them know I'm the cosmic comic. 
and the reaction and response was entirely different uh, than that first time that's when it. you could see a look of confusion because they were told that this is a great spiritual teacher right. and he's coming, <laughs> he's standing up there doing stand-up. If, I, along those lines, I would like to ask Swami how, uh, if he's ever had any interesting reactions from from people from who who hail from India. Well, it very often doesn't hail in India. <laughs> no, no, I think that they, that they recognize a kindred spirit. Uh, often okay. I've looked out, I've looked out, and I go, look out, because there's all these people that look like they're from India. Mm-hmm. And so I go, well, I hope they don't think I'm making fun of them. But when they come up afterwards, they say, oh, that was really, really funny. Very good. You know, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, you this, say is, that. this is interesting because yeah. I've got to tell you something. The people who I've had the most trouble with are these politically correct people from Berkeley mm-hmm. or Ithaca or places like that mm-hmm. um, where they project. I actually had this happen. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. first times uh, I, was, I was doing a radio show in, uh, in Berkeley, and I didn't know this, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm on this with Swami. And um, the, um, somebody else called in, and the two, two of us are going back and forth, and he was obviously putting on a Swami accent and bored of going back like this, back and forth. What I didn't know is that the engineer was African-American, and he's just carrying his hair out. He's going, make them stop doing that. Make them stop doing that. Because he projected his own, uh, mm-hmm. you, know, mm-hmm. you know, we we can't make fun of those people. Mm-hmm. And he just assumed that, the people from India would think that I was making fun of them, but they right. don't have the same uh, wound related to right, that. Right, right. You know, it's you interesting. Know? Feeling. And uh, I mean, and this, <clears throat> there's a lot of healing. And I think we, you know, I know we're going to talk a little about the election right. later. But I think one of the things that I really, really hope is now up for question is political correctness. Swami says political correctness is politically incorrect um, because it. What happens is you put up this uh, thou shalt not say these words, these words, these words, and these words. And not only does it bring out the rebellious nine-year-old in every, in every boy, um, but what it also does is it really prevents um, a true, honest conversation. And it, it preempts heartfelt respectfulness uh, by forcing one to um, uh, speak a certain way, uh, even if you don't feel that way. And uh, I think that we've now, you know, laid open the wound for everybody in this uh, so-called civilization. Uh, All the nicey-nicey that we've put on top of it, it's now been revealed, and now we actually have to have a real healing conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Along those lines, Steve, in regard to what you do, in speaking to spiritual groups, are there lines that you are afraid to cross? Like, in other words, making jokes about the guru, if it's a guru-centric movement. Because uh, my experience is that that's very sensitive in in most of those groups. Well, you know, the idea of humor, when it's done right, is humor is never oppositional. Humor is a lot like a keto. Um, Humor doesn't push against something it just simply finds a way around it that is uh, that is delightful and surprising so the way that i did uh, very early on uh 
you know, my my good friend uh, Phil Proctor from Firesign Theater. I mean, they invent they they first had the G U R U, and so I took that and I created the Guru rap song G U R U. So when I when I look at um, so when I've spoken in front of those groups and people ask about the Guru, I say, Wow, you want to look at the cool at the true Guru? Look in the mirror and go G U R U G U R U. Nobody can argue with that. It doesn't push against anything. It doesn't insult the guru. It doesn't disrespect uh, the people who find that form of devotion uh, helpful to them. Um, so over the years, as I've performed in front of various groups, I mean, there's, there's a number of things that, in my, the way that my mind works, um, my mind has no censorship. It's between the mind and the lips is where I have to decide what am I going to do. So as a good example, uh, maybe 13 years ago or so, I'm performing at a very open-minded church in uh, Vancouver, B.C., and somebody asked about uh, a guy, uh, he, he probably was gay, he asked about gay marriage. And the Swami said, well, you know, I think gay men are coming into their own. <laughs> and there was a silence, and then all of a sudden the whole place came down. The, the entire structure, I mean, just everybody just burst out laughing. They couldn't control themselves. And, of course, the Swami did like a Jack Benny, like, what did I say, what did I say? Mm. Now, that was 13 years ago. This question comes up a lot. Uh, I have used that line only five times since that time because I've had to very, very carefully gauge my audience mm. to see whether they are willing to uh, go all the way or whether I would have to dig myself out of a hole. Mm. Um, I have a friend, Alicia Datner, a very talented young comedian, and you know, she said, she says, the comedy club is sacred space. What does she mean? Um, as in the Native American Hayoki, the Native American trickster clown, in that culture, the Joker is always wild. The Joker always trumps everything. And um, in the space of a comedy club, in that sacred space, just as surely as the jester was allowed to say anything to the king, um, in the space of comedy, between consenting adults, um, you can you can go anywhere um, in the in in that space of comedy you can you can actually explore things that are taboo you can say things that are forbidden mm. um, and when you do that you have the uh tremendous opportunity for um deconstructing ideas that are obsolete and i'll I'll give you another example that's not my own. Um, uh, at his first Lenny Bruce, and I'm sure most people who are listening know who Lenny Bruce was, but he was a very edgy comedian in the 50s to the mid-60s. You know, he was called a dirty comedian. He was the first to use these four-letter words in his performance. He was arrested. He was persecuted, etc., etc. So Lenny Bruce is doing his first performance in New York. He is made his name on the West Coast in San Francisco. His reputation preceded him. Maybe the late 1950s, I'm thinking. 
and he's at a club in New York. And again, who's there? Uh, it was one of these jazz clubs. So he's got the beatniks, he's got the intellectuals, and he has a few celebrities. And in the front row is the great basketball player, Wilt Chamberlain, and uh, his date, and Sammy Davis Jr. and his date. And so very early on in the show, uh, Lenny Bruce wants to light a cigarette. So he asks Wilt Chamberlain to pass his cigarette so he could light his cigarette. And he looks at the cigarette that Wilt Chamberlain passed, and he says, you've been nigger-lipping this. And the entire crowd, (gasps) nobody breathed until Wilt Chamberlain and Sammy Davis Jr. (laughs) burst out laughing, and the entire place came down, Mm. and the idiocy of that phrase got deconstructed. Mm. Now, I'm saying this, I'm I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody, I'm simply talking in quotes, and saying something that happened, you know, 55 years ago or so, to indicate that Lenny Bruce took this really very risky risk, knowing intrinsically that the audience didn't think he was racist. And so as a shaman, as a disruptor of the ordinary, he was able to say something in a context that would get it heard in a completely different way and point out the absurdity of the phrase as it is. But, but, but let me George interrupt, Carlin Steve. There's, there's, always, years and years. There's, there's always the risk that Will Chamberlain wouldn't have taken it, taken it well and would have been offended. And then where does the comedian go with that? It's easier said than done. And, and I, I don't know that it works all the time. Well, well, that's exactly right. And that's why I say he took a tremendous risk, because mm-hmm. if, if, if he didn't get that response, it would have been, uh-oh, a big uh-oh. And that's why um, in the split second when I have to decide whether I use this piece of material or go for that piece of material, I'm gauging whether, uh, I'm gonna, whether people in the audience are going to be hurt or confused or disturbed in a bad way. You know, some ideas deserve to be disturbed. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really. But I'm not looking to uh, to cause hurt um, in what I do. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the opposite of the of the neutron bomb. You know, destruct ideas, leave humans standing. You know, mm-hmm. Steve. Um, when you're performing as Swami, um, do you have is, do you have intention beyond just entertainment, beyond just making people laugh? Is there an agenda, uh, not an agenda, but is there uh, as part of your uh, sort of mission or your raison d'etre for having the character of Swami Beyond Ananda? to illuminate, to enlighten, to move people uh, along spiritually, or is it just entertainment? Well, Not you know, that there's anything wrong with just entertainment. <laughs> well, entertainment is good. Uh, you know, when you talk about raison d'etre, yes, I'm in debt, I have to go out and make money and do my show. No, right. no not that. But, but actually, um, it's funny that the character, Swami Beyond Ananda, essentially defined how and what he says, and it brought out a part of me that was kind of more reticent. You know, coming from New York, 
I learned how to insult people through humor. I was really good. I had, mm. uh, I was a tongue fu master, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, and and I definitely was was really good at that. When the Swami character uh, showed up, um, there was naturally wisdom underneath what he was saying. It just made the humor. It gave the humor more depth. So, and you know, don't get even, get odd. Uh, there's there's wisdom in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, drive your karma, curb your dogma. When you mm-hmm. see a sacred cow, milk it for all it's worth. You know, it's not just funny lines. There's, it's about something. Right. It's about mm-hmm. something. And so that was how it how it began. Um, and so it, in a certain regard, I've often look read books and listen to talks, done practices, and then I've translated those into humor, using humorous terms to actually describe what I've learned so that it becomes useful and memorable to other people. So while they're being entertained, they're being um, offered uh, something deeper. And people always say that, and Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the reasons why people from India have never taken offense at what I do. And why they always come up uh, very kindly is because they really recognize that it is a delivery system mm-hmm. for, for something deeper than good. just the throwaway line. Very good. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you... It gives well, comedy more power. Yeah. W- one, mm-hmm. one final question from my side, Steve. Uh, and, and that is, um, you've been exposed to many different spiritual groups and you... Your, uh, your, com- your, your career as a comedian. Uh, is there any uh, group or groups that you were really taken by and thought, I w- maybe even wanted to become part of uh, because uh, you were so um, affected by them or their teacher or their teaching? Other than Scientology. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not... You know, I guess I respond to individual audiences, and uh, I always appreciate In fact, we just did a show at, at a big Unity Church in Roanoke, Virginia, mm-hmm. and I was so taken by that audience. They were so ready to play. Um, and I think that that's really what it is. Whatever, it's kind of like, I'll have what they're having. Whatever, if there's, if there's some, some path, some... Um, Group, and I think often it's not so much the teacher, or it's how people have um, cultivated um, flexibility and good nature uh, around those teachings. And I think part of what what the Swami and comedy has sought to do is to um, really play with paradox, because that's the place of enlightenment. Being able to mm-hmm. hold opposite simultaneously and so the kind of humor you know you know when when i first started doing this everything was like you should be non-judgmental so swami would say i think i think judging is terrible and people who blame are the cause of all the world's problems you know so you would take that you would um you would i call it pumping ironies you know Mm -hmm. as you take things that are contradictory and you bring them to consciousness, and all people can do is laugh about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes, one more thing along those lines is that I can tell when people lighten up. Uh, when I first started doing this, I, I went to the 
uh, this one group of uh, the Florida Macrobiotic Association I performed in front of, and they were wonderful people. But when I walked in there, I went. I was shocked because these people were emaciated. It looked like I was <laughs> witnessing the liberation of a concentration camp. They were so sickly and pale and just sick-looking people. Well, I came back there about five years later, and everybody looked much better. And Swami says, oh, you look so good, you must be cheating on your diets. And everybody <laughs> laughed, because indeed they had, they had released some of the rigidity that they had about their uh, diet. They uh, broadened their diet, and they became healthier and happier by doing that. One uh, so, last question I have for Swami. Yes. Uh, we are recording this exactly a week after Election Day 2016, and I'd really like to know um, if Swami has any words of wisdom for a, a nation in shock. Well, I would have to say this, that evolution has played its trump card. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the Bible, when it talks about the end times, a sign that the end times are here, it says the final trump shall blow. Okay? Oh. Well, many people are thinking, well, we think that trump blows, that's for certain. Well, what is the evolutionary moment? It means, It means that we actually are being called forth to recognize the unity of who we are, that we are not that. He is the contrast. You know, for years we have had the kind face on our empire, and yet underneath it, the same big fat ass. Yes? And so now, um, as people have come to realize, we have a, we've had a sociopathic empire with a nicey-nicey face on top of it, why not have a real sociopath in charge? <laughs> so... That is where we are right now, and in order for us to actually gather around the virtues and values that the vast majority of us who are not sociopaths have in common, we have to compost this election. Yes, because a lot of the posts that I've been seeing have not been very calm. <laughs> so we begin to compost by writing calmer posts, because what happens is when we get so into this fear, this fight or flight, it takes us out of our, our, our creative brain, puts us in our hind brain. So we have to say to our hind brain, get thee behind me, hind brain, and let's go to the membrane and the woman brain, the frontal brain, where we are all in this together. And so we must stand like calm posts, sturdy, steadfast in the ground, holding for what we believe, that, each, that we are each and all cells in the body of one unified humanity and that the kinds of fighting against one another is a form of autoimmune dysfunction. We must recognize that we are here for life, liberty, justice, thrival for all. And as we remember who we are, we will be able to not have a revolutionary uprising to overthrow this system, we will have an evolutionary upwising to overgrow this system. Very good. An upwising. I like it. Thank you. Very good. You Thank you so very much. Uh, 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 a lull in the storm this week. So, uh, we'll look, and, and uh, we will post your website so uh, those that would like to see you perform will know your schedule and you have written books and all that information will be up uh, thank you so very much. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. And uh, we look forward to uh, this upwising taking place as more and more people 
take a step forward. As they go down, we go up, and we take everybody with us. Great. Thanks, Steve. Thanks.